0: Today's episode is a rebroadcast from an episode of the Annex podcast, a sociology podcast created by three sociologists, Joe Cohen at Queens College, Leslie Hinkson at Georgetown University, and Gabriel Rosman at UCLA. This episode is hosted by Joe Cohen and me as a guest host. It features sociologist Arthur Sakamoto, who's a popular guest on Half Hour of Heterodoxy, and one of the first sociologists to join Heterodox Academy, You can listen to past episodes of The Annex at theannexpodcast.com and follow it on Twitter at SocAnnex. That's S-O-C-A-N-N-E-X.
1: This is The Annex,
2: a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from the City University of New York, Queens College. Today, we interview Arthur Sakamoto from Texas A&M about Asian Americans and education. We have a special guest host, Chris C. Martin from Georgia Tech. Our discussion was recorded on Tuesday, April 16th, 2019. All right, before we begin, let's start with some uh, introductions. Uh, First, we have Chris C. Martin from uh, Georgia Tech, who's co-hosting today. Chris, you study uh, well-being and happiness?
0: That's correct. I've I've dabbled in a number of areas, but uh, I think of that as my primary area. I'm in the sociology of mental health. From a sociologist perspective, that's where I fall, sociology of mental health. But I did my PhD at Emory. Uh, Corey Keyes was my advisor. He's one of the few sociologists who studies positive functioning, kind of in the tradition of Marie Jehoda, I think I'm pronouncing her name right, Uh, who who studied... um, health as not just being the absence of negativity, but also the presence of positive functioning. So in that tradition, I'm in the, the social and mental health. I also studied psychology before coming into sociology, so I did a master's in psychology first.
2: Cool. Got, got anything uh, on tap that you want to tell us about? Any projects you're working on that are interesting?
0: Um, as far as happiness and well-being goes, actually, no. I've got a paper that might be out pretty soon that's uh, that's interesting. about It's about politics and attitudes towards Ebola policy that might be coming out in the Journal of Social and Political Psychology. That's it's about the variation between highly educated Democrats and highly educated Republicans. And there's another paper that may or may not be accepted, so I won't say where. But <laughs> <All> it's, <right. laughs> um, it's about, uh, it's actually a topical. It's about how Asians and whites interpret answers about working hours mismatch differently. It turns uh, out when you ask people if they want to spend more time at work or less time at work, Asians and whites seem to interpret that question differently.
2: Oh hmm. wow. Oh wow, that's wow. nice. Well, I hope you'll drop us a line when that when that finally comes out. It sounds like well. And also before we move on, I just want to say uh Chris hosts the Heterodox Academy's podcast, a half hour of uh, heterodoxy. Do you want to just give a quick plug for the show?
0: Sure. So it's a show um, like you get from the title. It's 30 minutes per episode, two episodes per month. We interview academics throughout the social sciences, as well as people who work for nonprofit organizations and other types of organizations um, that try to build a healthy discourse between people of different religions or different ideologies. And when I interview academics, often the topic is not about discourse per se, but it's about some really interesting recent research. In the social sciences that touches on some politically sensitive issue, that either brings some light to why people misunderstand each other, yeah. or whether even the ideas of whether the concepts of liberalism and conservatism are actually more complicated than we think.
2: Nice. It's a half hour of heterodoxy. I think of it as a smarter and better put together version of this show. So
0: flattery will get you nowhere. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> and now it's uh, our guest, uh, Arthur Sakamoto from Texas A&M. He's a, a demographer who specializes in economic sociology, inequality, race, and much more. He has a huge number of publications to his uh, credit. Uh, do you want to just give us sort of a characterization of your uh, body of work, Art, before we
1: delve into these particular pieces? Yes. First of all, thank you for having me on your show. But in terms of my work, I do. uh, Exactly as you said, a a lot of the demography relating to inequality and stratification. And so race and ethnic differentials are part of that. But I also have done um, a lot of work on institutions and labor market uh, inequalities that differentiate workers and others within racial groups. And so I guess my background's a little bit different from a lot of people in sociology who just only specialize in studying race and ethnicity, and they don't really have a very good understanding of sort of the broader inequality and, and stratification system. So I kind of do both of those areas, which gives me you know, more of a perspective on, well, what is the role of race per se?
2: So, so today we're going to talk about Asian Americans and education. Uh, Art has some some pretty strongly worded and, and forceful criticisms that I'm looking forward to getting in today. <laughs> the, the table, though, I mean, Asian Americans in education—it's a huge issue right now. Obviously, there's the Harvard lawsuit,
1: mm-hmm. and
2: recently here in New York, uh, New York City's magnet high schools made news by only admitting something like seven African American students and. That news item has been used to push for calls to stop using standardized tests for admission and start doing something like Texas has done in its uh, college admission system, where they just Mm -hmm. take the best students from each uh, feeder school. And that has uh, caused a lot of uproar. And a lot of that uproar has come from the Asian-American community, who is very well represented in those schools Mm -hmm. and uh, stands to lose a lot of those seats. If uh, these reforms go through, so there's a lot of controversy. There's a, a a lot of you know pretty heavy questions, both both scientific and political. And so I'm really grateful to have you uh, here to chat with us. Well, thank you. So maybe before we start, so today we're going to talk about two two critical uh, pieces. One of Jennifer Lee and Minzu's uh, the Asian American Achievement Paradox.
1: Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. Uh, published with Russell Sage, and the second is a critique of Omar Lazardo's ASR piece, improving cultural analysis. Now, most of our readers don't have any background, you know, in in, in these subfields. So maybe can we start with Liam and uh, and Zhu's, uh book? Can you maybe start us off by giving us a sympathetic rendering of what they argue in the book, uh, the Asian American achievement paradox?
1: Well, um, to be frank, there's a lot of the book that i find kind of hard to simplify because to be frank some of the argumentation seems a little bit unclear and um but the the basic issue that uh they're promoting is is the idea that Asians are a very a selective group that they aren't representative or random that they're the elites from asian societies and so I mean, again, they're not that clear, but it seems to be the implication that these are extremely talented people and that mm-hmm. they are not sort of your average Chinese or your average Vietnamese or your average Japanese or what have you. And it's just that because you're picking out the best and the brightest of the brain drain or whatever, it's not unusual that they would be, uh, have offspring that are so select, that are so successful. And so, again, the the argument isn't that clear, but sort of the implicit background kind of elephant in a room here is that it's not really cultural values. It's Mm -hmm. not something about what they do. It's that they are really exceptionally privileged and selective people, and it's not about Asian culture per se. It's not about anything that is cultural, or they don't have higher values necessarily. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly not sort of associated with sort of ethnic cultures. I mean, and that they sort of try to say in, in by calling it a, a, quote, class-specific selective migration stream. Mm-hmm. So that that's the main kind of perspective they have. And then they have more sort of detailed sort of discussion about how there's supposedly a positive stereotype. Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of this self fulfilling prophecy that because they have this positive background, people, teachers sort of expect that. And because the children have these expectations put upon them by their teachers, in fact, they do excel. And it's sort of the positive stereotype that's self reinforcing. The third component that they talk about was. In Asian societies, uh, examinations are very important and omnipresent and very tough. And so it's very common in East Asian societies, and I think Chris can tell us, I think in many South Asian societies in India as well, that they go to cram schools. There's an entire industry to help you study for exams. And so um, when the Asians come here, the argument is that they bring this sort of background background industry with them and so there's these like studying services and sort of uh, companies and resources online that that students make use of and so that gives them another sort of as they say ethnic capital that helps to promote that other groups supposedly lack
0: I don't recall if it was in that book or her follow up papers but I think Jennifer Lee also tends to draw attention towards the heterogeneity of Asian Americans um, I've not read the entire book. I've read some of her papers, so I don't know how much of the book she devotes to that. And the, it's the idea that because every Asian country is a little different from every other country, and the United States gets immigrants from well, more or less every Asian country, but a spread of about eight to 10, all of which are quite different from each other. For example, Vietnam is quite different from India. It's really misleading to look at medians when you're talking about Asian Americans overall, or just measures of central uh, measures of central tendency.
2: Mm -hmm. wait just a clarification question when we're saying asian do we mean east asian are south asians included in that are we talking about uh, like in is are indians pakistanis included in this or are we talking about you know korea japan you know southeast asia
1: well in, in general in the u.s context you know asian includes both east asia southeast asia and south asia okay and if you look at the history of asians the commonality stems from uh, being non-white and non-black, right. which sort of influenced the evolution of, of citizenship laws. And so the fact that India and um, you know East Asia were both non-white and non-black, essentially the laws at the time said anything basically through the Supreme Court decisions early 20th century, anything east of Pakistan was considered Asia okay and so because of this legal history they get uh grouped together
2: so wait just so i understand the basic thrust of of lee and Zhu's book so there's an observed difference between the academic performance or achievement levels of asians versus other non-white minorities and the argument that they are advancing is one that is against the culture of poverty argument and says, no, the Asians that we have here are doing well because we've skimmed off the top of other societies. And those elites, even though they might have come here economically poor, they are elites and they have sort of cultural capital and they have existing institutions that sort of vault them into the, you know, the middle class, the upper middle class, the performance level of whites. And so it's like a structural argument that is explaining Asian achievement is that the basic thrust, sort of.
1: Yes, that's that's exactly right, and okay. um, y- the way you described it, interpreted it is it is quite uh, appropriate because again, the the elephant in the room here is that we don't want to attribute anything to culture, right? That that it, it's just quote resources in the abstract, right? And so th- it, it's all sort of uh, structured in in those terms of denying a, a cultural component. Right.
2: And, and and you're critical of that approach.
1: Yes, I, I am critical of, of that approach. But, um, you know, first of all, let me say that, um, I, you know, I work and view myself as a social scientist. Mm-hmm. So let me say, first of all, I don't have all the answers. I don't really know exactly what's going on with South Asian groups because we haven't studied them. I, I hope we study them more. But, you know, if we You know, go back to some of the classic works in sociology. Robert Merton wrote a famous article on the bearing of empirical research for sociological theory. You have to engage in convenient facts. You have to look for the variance and the independent variable to improve your theories. Your theories start out being um, simplistic. And so through further research, we refine and complicate and make our theories more explanatory and being able to uh, explain more of the variants. So uh, I, I'm strictly a social scientist and I, you know, I I'm welcome being shown wrong wrong later on. The, the point is not, you know, what book wins more awards. The, the point is what, what do we know as social scientists?
0: I agree. I mean, we definitely don't have all the answers. There is some research in social psychology, uh, showing some similarity, some reasonable level of similarity between South Asians and East Asians. Mm. Um, again, that's an area that needs that needs much more research. But, And I think there are some particular differences too. Um, but when it comes to academic achievement, I, I think you can you can kind of see, I, I guess I should mention for those of your viewers who don't know this about me, I'm Indian. I migrated to the United States from India. Mm. Um, I have a we- very Western name because of my yeah. Catholic parents. Uh, across India, China, and Japan, There's definitely an emphasis on doing very, very well in school. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm speaking just about India from personal experience. The ideology as I saw it when I was growing up was that good jobs are scarce and 80% of the people live in poverty. I was growing up in the 80s. Mm. So the way to get out of poverty is to get a degree in a field like engineering or medicine that provides you with a lot of security Mm-hmm. Now, some people also draw a connection to Hinduism and the idea of Hinduism being a more scholastic religion, and mm-hmm. I don't know, I can't speak to that. I'm not an expert on that side of it. But mm-hmm. the way I saw it was, it was a matter of poverty and and not going back into poverty. Most people can trace their grandparents to a, a small village where people live and um, very low income. So it's a very real threat. It's kind of like Depression-era America and that mentality.
2: Is the argument, the, the Li and Shu argument that Asians are skimmed off of their the old world and brought here. Does that resonate as true for you that the Indian population in America is no a a higher higher status Indian uh, immigration?
0: So that that part does ring true to me. Um, I think it depends on where you draw the line between. um, What do you mean by the top when you say skimming the top? Um, It's not really what I would just call the the wealthiest class of people. You do get a large number of people from the middle class mm-hmm. as well. You you do tend, to, at least from India, you do tend to not get that many people from the working class, and I don't know the stats. Um, right. It's easier to get an H-1B visa and a green card if you're at least in the middle class.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, the, I, I just think, um, you know, in, in general, migration streams are selective uh, mm-hmm. in general, and they always have been. This push and pull factors, but the hyper selectivity argument is a term they use. Hyper selectivity, and again, we need, as Chris says, more research on this. Maybe it does apply more to certain groups than others, and, and Indians may be one of those groups. Mm-hmm. But yes, you know, I, I mentioned how their book is a, is a little bit vague on a lot of issues. I mean, at first they're talking about heterogeneity and all the groups are different, and yet. You know they they make some pretty strong generalizations about Asians at the same time, despite being heterogeneous. And the issue that one of the book really front and center are Vietnamese, hmm. and the majority of Vietnamese uh, were not selective at all. Uh, mm-hmm. They came as refugees, and uh, the you know the majority of Vietnamese came you know during the eighties, the, the mm-hmm. so-called boat people. It continued until that program, orderly departure program, continued to 1997. It started tapering at 1992. But uh, you know, these are guys that uh, had no more education than you know eight or nine years. And as uh, they show in their book and others have shown, including myself, uh, the second generation Vietnamese, despite being the children of refugees, outperform whites in terms of how far they get in school. Now, let me emphasize again, I'm, I'm a social scientist. I am not making any value judgments. Right. And getting back to what Chris is saying, uh, or working on, it doesn't mean Asians are happier. It mm. doesn't mean they're better off. It doesn't mean necessarily that that's a good thing. I'm just saying from a social science point of view, it is a statistical fact that Vietnamese Americans, the ones that are raised in the U.S., are more likely to go to college than whites. And, and why is that? It is probably... Partly cultural, it it isn't just that they're hyper selective. Now, if you look at the Vietnamese that came in 1975 Mm -hmm. at the fall of Saigon, and we all remember the photograph of the helicopter on the top of the US Embassy, that group did have higher SES. Those were the ones that were more Catholic, they spoke English, they had Mm -hmm. white collar jobs, they, they worked for the US government. Uh, They had slightly higher SES by, especially by Vietnamese standards. And if you look at their children, it is true that they do a little better than the second wave of Vietnamese who are the so-called boat people who came from rural areas where farmers and fishermen did not speak any English, had little education, uh, were not white collar. So class does matter. And it does matter in Vietnam. It does matter in China and India and everywhere else. So I'm not saying that there isn't some selectivity there or that class doesn't matter. But Hmm. most studies of socioeconomic background of Asian-Americans, not just recently, but if you go back to the 1920s, if you go back to the 1930s, the 1910, I mean, my grandfather was a farmer. And that generation of Japanese-Americans, most of their parents were farmers or fishermen, and they had extraordinary high levels of education. And same for the Chinese. So this didn't just start you know, 10 or 20 years ago or with this or that book. It's been going on for a century, that Asian-Americans have higher levels of educational attainment relative to the SES of their, of their parents. That's not sort of a, a new finding. And the Vietnamese fit that perfectly. So, you know, there, there is a cultural component here. And we're mm-hmm. not going to figure that out if we just uh, keep denying it.
2: So are you, are you saying that the big problem with this skimming hypothesis is that even when low SES Asians come here, they ultimately become uh, high educational attainers. And so that's the weakness of that argument.
1: Yes. And ironically, Joe and Lee say the same thing. Hmm. I mean, they can't even see the own contradictions in their own book. They specifically say that Vietnamese are low income and working class quote Chinese still do well. And so I, you know, I'm just mind boggled that they're making a class argument when they contradict themselves on the next page. It just uh, I guess what they're saying is that uh, while they, they are uh, still high level by the standards of their country, which is so, so low, mm-hmm. and they have some statistics on this. And by the way, their statistics are very misleading. They don't break down by cohort. And these are rapidly developing societies. And so, uh, you know, if you're 80 or 90 years old in China, there are no schools to go to whereas for young people today the chinese educational system is expanding left and right so you can't measure selectivity by comparing people who are 20 years old with people who are 85 years old okay that makes sense. and and that's why you know any serious demographer when we talk about educational attainment we break it down by cohort i mean my own mother even in america which has had the strongest educational system for a long time as she grew up in the Depression, she had to drop out of high school to work in a bakery. That was mm-hmm. not uncommon during the Great Depression. But you can't compare that system with what we have now. So their statistics don't break down by cohort. And also, most of these people come, they get schooling in the U.S. You mm-hmm. could say, well, they have PhDs. Well, they didn't have it when they left China. That's how they got here. And so they came over really just Average middle class people and availed themselves of the educational opportunity in the U.S. They aren't PhDs from China. They are middle class people who came here and then got their education here. It's not a reflection of stravication in China. And, And lastly, let me say, the whole argument is obscure. I mean, selection of what? Is it your bank account? Is it how many houses you have? Is it your IQ? They don't specify what that hyperselectivity is. And the reason why that's relevant is it is well known that in China, you have a household registration. I was teaching in Shanghai last summer. People who work in Shanghai are not allowed to live in Shanghai. It's called a household registration system. You cannot send your children to a school in Shanghai. So the workers would come in and then they would leave. It's easier to get a green card in the United States than it is for a Chinese citizen in China to get a green card in Shanghai or Beijing because the restrictions are so hard. So it's not like they're all competing with each other. Quite the contrary, the, the Foucault system in China is highly segmented. And we see that a lot depends on what schools you go to. And you just can't switch schools because that is part of your household registration. So People who go through this system, they start studying at cramped schools when they're six, seven, eight years old. This is a school system with extraordinary horizontal characteristics. If you are from the University of Tokyo in Japan, mm. your life is set. You have the best pick of the marriage market. You're on track to be CEO of a mar- major corporation, and probably you could be a member of Congress. But if you come here, who cares about the University of Tokyo? You've been studying since you were six years old Eight hours a day after coming home from school. And you're going to throw that all away to come to Houston to open up a ramen shop? I mean, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense.
0: <laughs> yeah. There's also the issue of measuring cultural values. And I think you get into that in the paper where you comment on uh, Omar Lazardo. Uh, sometimes Asians are using other Asians as a reference. So when they say their academic aspirations, are modest, it's because they mean relative to other Asians.
2: Yeah. Can we make sense of these uh, aspiration things? Like they're so subjective and feel like the answers would be so culturally filtered. Are they even useful, these types of questions?
1: Well, if, if you ask them, well, I mean, that is an important question. And, you know, we, we do have to think about response bias and, you know, social desirability bias and how groups perceive these. And, you know, Chris knows more about this than than I do. But let me say for some of the work that I've done and and know of, uh, uh, low-income African-Americans, what they say in surveys is exaggerated in terms of their incomes. Because if you go and get their W-2 forms that their employers by law are required to file, they are exaggerating how much money they make for the folks that don't have a high school degree. So there's some social desirability bias in the old days, you could look up who's voting. The rate at which African-Americans said they voted uh, is exaggerated, or the rate at which they said they were um, registered to vote. You could go back to those counties and look up those names. I mean, a researcher did this and found that more than whites, they were more likely to say that they were voting and that they did register to vote when, in fact, that wasn't the case. And so we do have to worry about this. In the case of Asians, uh, one way to be more, perhaps reduce the bias to say, you know, what educational level do you expect to complete? Mm. Instead of saying you very much or, or somewhat or not so much, you could say specifically. And when you do that, you find consistently that Asians, like 40% of them, at least say in high school that they aspire to complete. It is their plan to go to college and go to graduates, 40% is much higher than any other group. I mean, I don't know where Lazardo gets his data. I mean, it's, every study finds that. So it's, it's just like he's, he's making stuff up. There's one study that's based on a focus group of eight people. And the researcher, Grace Cow just thinks, well, you know, how come you guys don't, I mean, it's just her subjective assessment of eight people from, I mean, and Lazardo generalizes that; it's a complete misrepresentation of the field.
2: So what are the basic? What's the basic thrust of uh, Lazardo's uh, argument? Do you? I'm I'm not sort of that's a let's say, so a, a very cultural argument for my personal taste. I'm more of a structural guy, so sometimes it's hard for me to get my head around. What's the basic thrust of well, you know, what Lazardo's arguing in ASR?
1: Well, uh, I, I wish he could write more clearly, but. Uh, it it seems to be the impression is that Asians are like a bunch of little programmed little machines. So they're like little like bees and they're just, just doing this instinctively and um, they don't really understand or value anything. They're just programmed to keep like the energizer bunny or something. (laughs) We're just like, well, actually education takes place over a number of years we see this that education progression depends on your prior skills. It takes huge amount of time and effort. The opportunity costs for young people are huge. I mean, who wouldn't rather be out playing ball or being at a party or doing computer games or watching Netflix? I mean, the entertainment is endless that young people have these days. So there's a huge opportunity cost for engaging in, in long-term studying, but that's exactly as your colleague Amy Shin and Yu Xie has shown, is what helps Asians to go to college is simply that they're more persistent in their studying. And again, uh, I'm not making any value gestures. That's just in the data.
0: So Lizardo's paper is about declarative and non-declarative aspects of culture. The focus of the paper isn't Asian Americans per se, but there's a section of the paper on Asian Americans where he argues that sociologists haphazardly pull both declarative and non-declarative aspects of culture together, kind of haphazardly to explain Asian American success. And I feel like the argument he makes there is not very strong because he's also criticizing the idea that there is a cultural argument to be made. And it's unclear what explanation Lizardo thinks we should use. In my view, his biggest mistake is that he says you can't use Confucianism to explain educational values in Asia because it's only found in one part of Asia— but as long as the other regions have a similar enough ideology or religion, that is a valid explanation.
1: Yes. And that gets to the cultural part. Uh, I mean, what is the mechanism? I mean, I, I'm also you know not a cultural determinist. I mean, it, culture always takes place in the context of a structure of opportunities, a segmented labor market, labor market queuing. Uh, minimum wages, uh, unemployment, all of these are factors. But in terms of the competition to get ahead, um, I mean, unless you have a very strict, you know, caste system or Jim Crow system, mm. people are still competing. And, and that's when the cultural factors play a role. And the commonality, I think, is is really the family. And so, uh, you know, Confucianism promotes the family, but, you know, it's not the other issues that... that Confucian is concerned with, but the strength of the family, we see that when children have two parents that are heavily invested in their children's uh, attainment, and they're not invested so much in, you know, are you going to be happy? What we're focused on, are you going to be successful? And when they make those kinds of investments, uh, I I think that's the commonality that, that we see between South and East Asians. And the other interesting thing, and, and Chris again knows more about this, is that there's an interface between sociology and psychology. The I mean, one thing that these cultures practice is, uh, I know this sounds simplistic, but it's there's just co-sleeping between mom and, and the kids. Hmm. And what happens is uh, Asian families accept codependency. Dependency is normal in Asian cultures, whereas in America particularly middle class and upper middle class people, the obsession is with individualism. They try to have the little baby like feed himself or herself and walk around and be independent and sleep in your own crib at two weeks. Asians find that totally weird. You you don't like force your kid to sleep in a crib. You you sleep as a family. And what that happens is it breaks down the individual borders between mom and the child. And the child is much more dependent on her mother's view of her self confidence is dependent on what her mother says. And so the transmission of the parents' desires to the child is much stronger than it is among white middle-class people. It's like, you know, if you slap me, I'm going to call the police and they're going to come pick you up for, you know, child battery. Uh, mm-hmm. In an Asian family, it's like you – you naturally obey your parents more because that's how you're socialized, that your view of yourself, the love that you get from your parents is more conditional. And again, I'm not saying that's good, but I am saying that, you know, you can find a lot of people in East Asia that have, you know, you would say mental issues of a sort because their parents did not really accept them completely. That, that's less common among Americans, you know, we all just want to be our true selves.
2: Let me uh, push to uh, spell out sort of this alternative view that I I read as uh, being in your critique. So my impression is that the basic thrust of your argument is that there's a thing that's like an Asian culture or an Asian American. First of all, is this an Asian culture thing or is it an Asian American culture thing? Like, is it brought from the old world or is it something that develops here with peer groups? Because I'm getting the sense that, you're conceptualizing a culture that is passed on through family ties that has its origins in the old world and was brought here. And we're talking about like a family values type of culture.
1: Yes. Um, But that's exactly right, but it's still American And, and that's the beauty of it. I mean, speaking as an Asian American, it isn't just American. It isn't just Asian. It's Asian American and it's the values of Asia transplanted to the American context where there is more opportunity of educational attainment because we don't just use a battery of test scores, that there's a variety of institutions that people can attain. So it's when you take Asian values centered around the family and transplant them to the American context that you get this high rate of attainment uh if you go back to korea or, or india or, or china or what have you uh there's less opportunity in the sense that uh there's only so much you can do to improve your test scores And know you go to the cram schools you know day and night but uh in, in american context uh you know just having a high gpa i mean I mean, what are they doing in in New York? It'll just be your GPA relative to your school, and and you know what you'll find, and what we saw here in Texas is that when you base admissions on, on on according to GPA or school rank, a lot of Asian parents will move their kids to less competitive schools to ensure that they're in the top X percent. I mean, I saw that a lot in Texas because their kid wasn't quite in the top ten percent, so they. Moved to a different school where it wasn't as competitive, and then they got into the top ten percent. So, so by actually, uh, I think dumbing down is too uh, negative a term. By by going to a less competitive school, they actually got into the University of Texas, which is you know the highest rated school in, in, in Texas.
0: Yeah, and it is striking um, when you travel to Asia, not having lived there before. So. My situation was a bit unusual. My father worked in Saudi Arabia when I was born, so I spent the first 10 years of my life there. And it was expat society, but I went to an American school. Uh, So the schooling was very individualistic. And then I moved to India when I was 10, not having any experience with the schooling system there. And I just remember talking to classmates and them saying things like, I want to be an engineer when I grow up, because that's what my parents want, and it's my obligation to do what my parents want. And coming from an American school, I thought it was very confusing that people were not choosing careers on the basis of personal interest. Hmm. And it took me a while to just get used to that as normal. Um, and that may be changing now, but certainly during the 1980s and 1990s and 2000s, uh, there was a sense in Asia that if your parents want you to, to have a particular highly competitive career, you had an obligation to do that for them.
2: So let me ask you guys. The I I understand the basic argument is that there is something in Asian culture and maybe this idea of people changing schools or honoring their parents wishes is part of whatever cultural, you know, set of values or scripts or whatever that promote achievement. What else is in that Asian culture thing? Whatever that is. What what's going on in there that promotes education that other cultures aren't doing? So if you have, let's say, you have uh, uh, an Asian person and uh, you know a, a Latinx person and a, a Black family, and they live next to each other, they work in the same place. Statistically, I guess the argument is the Asians would be doing something that the other groups wouldn't be doing. What is it? Or is that a fair? Is that a fair framing of the question? Or
0: um, well, I think that's fair. So. I think this ties into an early question you asked, which is what do you think about these survey questions about aspirations to begin with? Mm-hmm. And I've often thought it would be really interesting to have survey questions that either ask parents or children about consequences for bad grades. Because I think even though families of all races aspire for to have aspirations to do well or have aspirations for their children to do well, Asian parents are probably the only group that punish their children quite severely even for getting moderate grades or moderately good grades as opposed to exceptional grades. And I know that from personal experience and that you see this trope everywhere. Um, You do see it in some research too in terms of things parents tell their children you see with interviews with Asian Americans. So in terms of punitive um, repercussions, I think that's what you see in Asian families that you tend to not see as much in other families.
2: Now, is that well established or it's like a what possibility
0: I'd say it's more of a possibility um I could point to some papers, but yeah, it's not there isn't a huge literature on that
1: right. yeah, and that you know I, I agree with Chris completely, and it's kind of like we're afraid to study the d word the d word the d word is discipline mm. for Asian cultures, I mean discipline is not a bad word. you discipline people, you get out of line, you discipline them. You may throw some rice down on a mat and you have to kneel on the rice. Hmm. And so the rice is sticking on your knees because you didn't study enough. Again, I'm not making value judgments. I'm telling you why people study more. It's because of discipline. You may name your children. You have names. Junko, junsuke. The first character means orderliness and, and discipline. And Chinese have the same kinds of names. It Americans don't like discipline. It's supposed to be... You want to be you know engrossed in your studies and you work because you love it Mm -hmm. but to do well in the sat uh, you you have to be disciplined so part of discipline is having strong ties with parents and asians have lower divorce rates and they're more likely to have two biological family members we know that stepfathers don't invest in children on average as much as biological fathers And so when you have two parents, uh, you just have more economies of scale. You have more resources. And Asian parents, they save more money for their children's college. They also save a higher proportion of their income for their children's college. Because, again, I mean, what is Asian about it? The parents' utility function, if you want to use that term, their happiness, is a function of how well their kids do. And again for Americans that's called you know codependence but for Asian cultures uh it is the case that you will reduce your consumption in order to enhance the consumption of your children and the children see that and that's why they feel obligated because uh they see all the sacrifices their parents make for them and they would feel they would feel bad if they didn't recognize that love that their parents are giving them through that underconsumption. And they will tell you that. And they will say, while well, you were a kid who woke up at three o'clock morning to change your diapers. It was me. And then I went up and went. To... And they will tell you those things. In fact, they're experts at making you feel guilty because that part uh, of the motivation. And again, the, the Confucian aspect is that. There is the power of the will. If you discipline yourself, you too can learn to play a, a Beethoven piano sonata. It takes mm-hmm. discipline, but you're not going to get there first, but you work on that. And that is ingrained in, in Confucian cultures. Uh, I can't speak to to South Asian cultures, but the, the family is certainly the um, sort of intermediate or proximate determinant in terms of how well children do.
0: Yeah. As far as, as discipline goes, yeah, I, I agree with what Art said. It was the same thing I was trying to bring up, which is that the, you do get punished for getting bad grades quite severely in, in, in India and China and Japan. Hmm. Um, I honestly don't know that much about Southeast Asia. I mean, Art, you might know more about Southeast Asia, but I know in at least those t- three countries, it is, you're, you're kind of bringing shame upon yourself and you're failing your duty toward your family hmm. if you're bringing home B's or C's.
2: So let me let me uh let me move to sort of the the areas of pushback on this view that I think uh, some listeners will have. And the first one would be isn't this argument just the culture of poverty in reverse? Like whereas we're not saying that a group is performing poorly because Uh, They have some type of cultural traits that lend themselves to economic failure, educational failure. We're holding up another group and saying they are succeeding because they have cultural proclivities that dispose them to do well. But isn't that just, I mean, isn't the implication then if one group is doing well because it has some type of proclivity towards encouraging education or uh, disciplining their children? Are we saying that the others don't like, is this just a different type of culture of poverty argument? And if it is, is that a problem in your view?
0: I would say, yes, it is that sort of argument mm-hmm. that some values in a certain culture are more conducive to good consequences in terms of your, your outcomes in the socioeconomic spectrum. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a trade-off, so it's, it's not that good in terms of mental health sometimes. So it's not really, I wouldn't really use broad terms like functional values. So I don't think culture of poverty arguments per se are necessarily right or wrong. I think if you take a particular argument and you look for evidence, if people have evidence to back up one particular culture of poverty type argument, I think you should take that argument seriously.
1: Yeah, I I, I agree with Chris on that. And uh, Let me just first say that we would understand these better if we were Willing and open to, to studying it. But the culture of poverty, and again, this is explicitly denounced in, in the So and in, in Lee book, it, it's so politicized that it, it's really uh, become kind of taboo to, to cite uh, anything about Moynihan or, or, or family as being uh, important. And so, uh, just as a social scientist, you know, I I think we have to go there. And as an aside, there was this big, uh, debate over Mark Regner's paper published in 2012, which published correlations about children raised by same-sex, by parents who had had same-sex, uh, homosexual, uh, relationships. And the correlations were negative in a lot of dimensions. And he got really, I think, viciously attacked. He was, uh, audited for scientific dishonesty, but the point is everyone said, well, but that's not the same sex homosexual dimension. It's that the parents did not have stable relationships or that the family wasn't stable and children need stability. It's interesting that when the people talk about same sex parenting, the family stability is front and center. But when you talk about African-Americans who have also negative correlations, no one mentions the stability. It's as if the stability was so important for that group and all of a sudden it's disappeared. So I think there is something there. But let me just say that um, we don't want to have the mistaken impression that there isn't inequality. Inequality is increasing and not everyone can get into the top jobs. And so there's always going to be at the people at the bottom and they have to adapt to that system. So there is a structure to the labor market. So uh, I think the culture of poverty was too simplistic in the sense that they thought that if you just aggregate up individuals, then that's the distribution of outcomes. And so um, actually, um, you know, that that's the conundrum or or the complexity is to what extent is the culture a function of the structure? Is it an adaptation? So I guess I'm saying there's, you know, Partly this and partly that. I mean, the structure does matter, but you can never get rid of culture. Human beings ultimately are cultural. But here's here's the here's my issue with it.
2: I'll, I, I want to give uh, my you know a, a personal uh, pushback is that when you we talk about culture at very high levels of aggregation and we do so in a broad sense, then it almost, uh, a culture argument can almost function as a residual category where we just say there's an Asian effect, ergo culture, without specifying the specific mechanisms. Because if the mechanism is uh, family dissolution, then it's not about culture, it's specifically about family dissolution, right? Or if the argument is about discipline, well then it's really specifically about discipline. And my impression, especially at Queens College, is that there are non-Asian cultures that seem to uh, – non-Asian, non-white minorities that also seem to exhibit levels of academic or educational success and and maybe some of the traits that you say are Asian. Like Jews also do well. There's an argument, oh, maybe Jews can hide as whites or whatever. Um, Trinidadians, Cubans. There are other ethnic groups that have these uh, types of uh, – they, they do well. Nigerians. Uh, compared to, there, I was, Nigerians. I didn't even yeah. know that. Yeah. Uh, and, and and so it feels to me that rather than a more productive way of advancing, rather than saying, well, that's Jewish culture and the Nigerians have their culture, the, using culture in that way is almost like a residual catch-all where maybe the problem is, is that we have to – go down to the mechanisms and identify them. It's more, you know, it's it's just a way of theorizing that would render more precision, more testability, I feel.
1: Uh, ultimately, I, I agree with you completely. And as a social scientist, you know, we should be concerned with making generalizations that, that can't be tested. So I would agree. Um, right. Discipline, child-rearing patterns, uh, do you have rules for punishment, for not studying uh, marital stability, uh, how much money has been saved, what do the parents say they aspire for their children. Mm. But when you do those kinds of variables, and some people have done, you find that Asians have more of those things. And so, ultimately, why do they have more of those things? It's There is a cultural background, but you're right. The proximate determinants are, are what we should be uh, focusing on immediately to figure out sort of what the middle-level model is
0: and art you have a recent paper about nigerian americans maybe you want to talk about that
1: yeah pl- please do well uh the you know the sample size is still not big enough but so uh but you know in general they do as well as asians if huh. yeah nigerian this is the second generation uh these are people who grew up in the u.s uh, nigerian american women the second generation are more likely to go to college than, than Asian American women And uh, the, the difference between uh, Asians and uh, Nigerians is not statistically significant, but just descriptively, they're, they're a little bit higher. And so they do have higher levels of attainment than, than Asians. And you know, we're talking about culture, but these are not mutually exclusive factors. Uh, it also matters on income money matters. And so uh, there could be a a selectivity to some of these immigration streams. In the case of Nigerians, I cannot imagine they ever had much money, but they are very highly educated, the ones that come here. And so the um, selectivity is a matter, but the fact that Nigerians are doing so well has really um, been sort of overlooked by people working on race and ethnicity because uh, you know, the emphasis there is on African-Americans being disadvantaged. And so when you see a group like that, uh, maybe Trinidadians are another group that uh, they do well. I mean, you, you never really see this studied much. So that's that's a, mm-hmm. uh, another project I've been working on. I guess part of the problem is, yeah, we just don't have a lot of,
2: I guess there's more research to be done in a way.
1: There, there is, but uh, it has to be done uh, in a more scientific manner. And that is looking at all of the evidence and all of the relevant evidence uh, to address some theory. And what we have is a lot of people focusing on the usual topics just because it fits the narrative. And so I've submitted this paper to conferences and it's been rejected. I mean, why would you want to read a paper? I mean, they don't want to see that. And similarly, I've submitted papers... You know, want Japanese Americans. I mean, who cares about Japanese Americans? And so, if if you don't fit, and the the narrative, uh, and look at some of the textbooks. I mean, they're really, they say things that are false. I mean, it is not true that the poverty rate among Cambodians and 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 Laotians is sixty one percent. I mean, that's what. Matt Desmond says in his famous textbook, and um, he's an endowed Jared Brinston. I mean, it seems to have uh, a lot of play, and so what you tell them uh, what the real statistics are, uh, you're, you're at a disadvantage. And so, uh, you know, the field has progressed to the point where um, you know it's losing its scientific objectivity when um, you know there's so much emphasis on on popularity and and what people want to hear. And that's why I like, you know, Chris's uh, group so much, the Heterox Academy, because they self-consciously try to look at alternative views because you'll learn something from that that you have overlooked, like Nigerians, like Trinidadians. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, that's exactly, you know, the original argument of of John Stuart Mill, as as Chris can tell you.
0: I think hope for... um hopefulness about upward mobility is also a factor that varies and i think that can be even though it's not sufficient it is necessary and asian values i think might be particular to asians in some respects when it comes to things like filial piety but i think even nigerian americans like asian americans have quite a quite a lot of hope when it comes to upward mobility they they think it's a it's a reasonable thing to expect so i think one thing that varies is because of I think African-American culture and Latin American culture too, because of Latin Americans who live in Latin America, um, there tends to be more of a sense of doom and less of a sense of hopefulness because of persistent inequality. And um, there's, there's some research by Carol Graham on Latin American showing that because African countries have been stabilizing and doing better economically, even though you can take Latin American countries and African countries with approximately the same level of poverty, but you can find in african american country uh, sorry in African countries that um, parents are much more hopeful about their children, whereas in Latin america they're not and I think to some degree you see that in the United States where um African Americans because of their history of jim Crow legislation mm-hmm and discrimination until well into the 1960s and and beyond in some respects um, are less hopeful, whereas Asians who've had the opportunity to enter America on the basis of good grades at a university in India, uh, for example, are hopeful, and so two people can live in the same country but have very different attitudes towards mobility.
2: The only problem is, you know, my, first of all, I'm not an expert in any of this, education or race, so everything that I have to say is, Based on you know my personal observation at Queen's College, where we it's it's quite a diverse school, um, but I am sampling on the dependent variable, and it seems to me like across all communities of those who ultimately make it to university, and so I'm sampling on the dependent variable again. Like the desire and the value of education is there, the ambition is there. It and, and I can't help but shake the feeling that the race differentials that we see are probably rooted in much narrower specific you know either strategies or resources or something and, and that we're dealing with residual categories here. I just uh, like the the mainstream view is hard for me to shake because I do understand there's a logic to it mm-hmm. um, but I do agree that um, it is a it's it's not productive for us to ignore, performance differentials. I think it's just very important that we not attribute it to, you know, to something within like the basic essence of the group or something undefined, you know, as I think these, these arguments are fine as long as they're not endpoints. as long as they're just sort of setting the table for further analyses to find the precise mechanisms of these inequalities.
1: That's my opinion. Well, I mean, if, if we want to talk about race in America, the emphasis is on group differentials. But mm-hmm. I, I agree with you that, you know, most of the variance is within group. Yeah, uh, Most of the variance and most outcomes is within group. And uh, I yeah. started out in my career studying that within group variance. But again, discussions of race in America are statistical averages. And so mm-hmm. even though it doesn't explain much variance, if people want to talk about them, we, we at least have to do it seriously. And at the, the other point is that, what your comment suggests is that, you know, culture changes too. It's not just the yep. unemployment rate, minimum wage. And, you know, Asians are becoming quote, more Westernized and Americanized. And philopiety is not what it was. The the famous, you know, movie in Japan from the 1950s, decrying the end of philopiety, you know, the the Tokyo story by, uh, Kana, by uh, I mean, it Ozu. was it, and, and they're, they're changing too. And so, um, the thing about my father's generation is that his father was from the 19th century Japan. I mean, those guys are close to being feudal. <laughs> and so the culture part is changing all the time. You know, we say Nigerian, but they're really, you know, Igbu and Yorubu tribes, plus other tribes, Muslim and Christian uh, groups in Nigeria can have very different outcomes. than the ones that come here may be from one tribe or the other And so, uh, you know, what Chris was talking about, you know, there still is some cultural background to the proximate determinants that that you're saying uh, that you want to emphasize. And I agree with you that I guess I agree that there's room for both.
0: And you might also want to talk about the grad students you've had. There's a selection effect here where literature on Asian-Americans that doesn't fit conventional narratives doesn't get published and you can't do very well. So, but Art, you have more experience with that. Do you want to talk about that?
1: Oh, uh, the, the literature has, uh, has become very biased. So, so much so that if you pick up the latest issue, ethnic and racial studies, you know, Jennifer Lee has, uh, an analysis that is completely cooked up purporting to show that Asians, uh, face systematic racial discrimination in occupational attainment, which she calls the bamboo ceiling. And she's talked about it in the LA times and inside education and a bunch of other outlets. And, uh, You know, it's the weirdest paper I've ever seen. I've never seen a published paper where they cannot just interpret a multiple regression coefficient correctly. They don't know the difference between a bivariate analysis and a multivariate analysis. I it's absurd to me that this piece could get published because it's just completely wrong. And I've contacted them and asked them about it via Twitter. And of course they don't respond to me.
0: But you've also had graduate students have difficulty getting jobs with their focus on Asian-Americans.
1: Difficulty getting jobs. And the ones that do uh, sort of strategically stop studying Asians or at least stop studying them in a way that's informative. Uh, It's kind of the irony of of Asian-American studies programs. A lot of folks study Mexicans. I mean, call me old-fashioned, but I would think that an Asian American studies program would would study Asian Americans. I I spent years developing an Asian American studies program at at the University of Texas uh, because we didn't have one. And now a lot of them, like, they'll do, like, two or three papers on Asians, and they'll say the model minority myth, and then they'll start studying things that are, are more popular. So you have all these people, Asian Americans, that don't study Asian Americans. I'm like, go figure. Yeah, although it's hard to get anybody a job, really.
2: You've been listening to the Annex Sociology Podcast. Special thank you to Arthur Sakamoto of Texas A&M and Chris Martin of Georgia Tech. We're on the web, sociocast.org slash Annex, on Twitter at SociAnnex, and on Facebook, the Annex Sociology Podcast. Our producer is Leseth Moreno. I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening.